I want to start in Romans 8. And I'm going to be talking about familiar scriptures, but I want to come at it from an angle that will be familiar to some. In fact, some here would be able to speak it so much better than I could. But I want to come at it from an, an angle that will be unfamiliar to some of you. Let's start in Romans 8, verse 14. Paul is obviously talking about the flesh and the spirit through this whole process. Let's just look at verse 14 and 15. Although we could look at the whole chapter, it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Uh, I don't know if you're allowed to have favorite chapters, but Jesus had a greatest commandment, so I'm going to have a favorite chapter. Um, so verse 14 in chapter 8. I'm going to read from the New American Standard, and I believe it actually renders the grammar the best in this case. Uh, if somebody has something else you want to contribute, you can, but I'm going, to be, I'm going to emphasize the grammar, and it is right if you look it up in the Greek. This is correct grammar. The New American Standard doesn't always get the right text to be translating, but it usually gets the right grammar, however clumsily that may be. So it says this, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. All of the grammar that you're reading will agree with this, but the New American Standard makes it emphatic. All who are being led. What am I emphasizing in this verse? The ongoing present tense language and grammar that Paul is using. He is not writing to unbelievers. He is writing to saints of God at Rome. And we know that the slave has no permanent place in the father's house, but only the son has this permanent place in the father's house and an expectation of an eternal inheritance. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And we can say that ongoing leading of the Spirit is a prerequisite to our claim as sons. If we don't have the Spirit as an ongoing leading in our lives, then we cannot claim to be the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery or bondage leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of sonship or adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Paul uses this term, Abba, Father, but where is the first time that this appears in the New Testament? In fact, aside from Paul's reference to it in regard to sonship, where is the only other time that this appears in the New Testament? Jesus in Gethsemane. Abba, Father is a very intimate call. It denotes sonship in the most explicit and intimate way. My brother Nathaniel is married to Brother Tzafir's daughter Noam, and they speak Hebrew to their children. And their children call Nathaniel Abba. Did you call your father, father, or did you call him dad or daddy? There are two words here. 
Abba, Father. Obviously, he's bringing in the, the Hebrew to the Greek. But the word Abba is not just like patriarch or father. It's closer to daddy. Do you understand? So when he talks about this spirit that comes into our hearts, he is talking about a configuration of relationship that makes us feel toward God like he is our dad. Like we trust him on that level. He says, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear. So he says in the first verse, all who are being led, and then he uses the same word in the second verse. Fear, slavery leads to fear, but the Holy Spirit leads to sonship. All who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. All who are being led by slavery and addiction and bondage and unfreedom, these are the slaves of fear. He says, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear, but a spirit of sonship or adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. It's interesting, and I've taught on it before, that the first place where this Abba, Father appears is in Jesus' trial, where he says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And really, this is the pivot point in Romans 8, where Paul begins to talk about the affliction of Christians. So he frames affliction among saints. This is where he says, we ourselves groan within ourselves, even we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we groan. But our groan is not, oh God, why is this happening? Our groan is, Abba, Father. God, you know why this is happening, and I'm asking for it to change. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Because that's what Jesus said in his Abba, Father prayer. But for our purposes tonight, I want to focus on bondage, leading to fear versus being led by the Spirit. I want to focus on that and see if you hear a correlation between that and what he says in 2 Corinthians 3.17. I've already quoted it tonight. He says, Whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil that obscures the Spirit of God, the face of God, the presence of God, and the nature of God, that veil is taken away so that they can actually come to know whom they worship as the true Yehudim should. Whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away and he says, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So I want to see, do you see the correlation between what Paul says here in Romans 8, 14 and what he says here in 2 Corinthians 3, 17? Do you see the correlation of liberty and freedom and sonship? Do you? We have not received a spirit of bondage leading to fear again, but we have received a spirit of sonship 
by which we cry out. And here he says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So Paul is juxtaposing the Holy Spirit that we've received to bondage. And here again, he's emphasizing that the Spirit that we've received is a, is a place of liberty, is a state of liberty. Liberty, 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 freedom, freedom, freedom. That is his point, and that's what I want to talk about. Let's look at another scripture, shall we? You can go in your Bibles if you want to. Galatians 5.16. We're going to read through verse 18. Now listen to what he says. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh... For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. He says, walk by the Spirit and you won't do the things that the flesh pleases. <laughs> now look at here. Look at this, this, this last verse, 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. What am I emphasizing in that reading? If, he says, if you walk by the Spirit, you won't do the things that the flesh pleases. And then he puts this big conditional if. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Countless Christians will tout how we are freed from the law. Oh, praise God, we used to have to obey and we are free now. We used to have to love God, but we are free now. We used to have to give a hoot about our brothers and sisters, but we are free now to be selfish, rotten Christians. But that's not what he says, because he's presuming that you have not received the spirit of bondage, which is the flesh, but you have received a spirit of sonship. And if you've received the spirit of sonship, the Holy Spirit takes you to a place of righteousness far beyond the inadequate requirements of the law. Now let's look at Romans 8, verse 3. Back to Romans 8, verse 3. Look at this. For what the law could not do... Weak as it was through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirements of the law might be satisfied by Jesus alone and we might be scot-free and fancy-free. Scot-loose and fancy-free. Isn't that what it says? You Bible readers better be checking me on that. He says God did what the law couldn't do by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. Jesus had to pay the debt we couldn't pay. He condemned sin in the flesh. But we are not only justified by His death, we are saved through his life. He rose from that death. He didn't stay under the penalty. 
He didn't die and breathe his last when he made the penalty. He said, let me show you, not only is your past penalty paid for, but here comes the Holy Spirit pulling me out of the grave and I'm gonna help you by the power of the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body too. That's what he goes on to say in this same chapter. He condemns sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The law was weak, but the end product of the cross is a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. The end product of the cross is not to exempt us from righteousness, but to empower us unto righteousness. He condemns sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What did Jesus say? What did he say about this law that is becoming obsolete? According to the writer of Hebrews, he says, most assuredly I say to you, not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law until what? Until it is fulfilled. The law was a big pen, a big containment system that was empty of power. All it could do is nudge us and goad us, prick us to stay in the lines, but it didn't change us, it didn't regenerate us, it didn't empower us, it didn't fill us. But in Jesus' admonition, he said, blessed are they that do hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall learn how to be good. No, they shall be filled. Infilling is what empowers us to be righteous. You can't be righteous by external requirements or fear. You've got to be filled. Amen. If the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who present tense lives in you. In this same chapter, go down a few verses. He says, if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. So he says, it has to be fulfilled. And he says here, it's going to be fulfilled in us. It becomes obsolete. The threat of external punishment does not apply to someone for whom the spirit of love has internalized its will in their hearts. I want to give you an example that once it comes inside, the external becomes obsolete. Okay? Let me give you an example. Pick a couple in the church. We don't really have divorce in the church, unlike most places. There's no, there's no example of it, of those who remain here in the church. We just don't see it. So, but pick a couple who you think are, are, are in love with each other. Pick somebody who's just newly married. I, I, I want to pick on somebody that's here, but I can't think of any. Who's newly married around here? My wife's volunteering Drew and Elise, but they're not newly married. But anyway, Drew and Elise it is. <laughs> There's Elise, but where's Drew? They're separated, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> Do y'all mind, Drew? Okay, thanks. So they obviously love each other. They knew each other for 
years. They got engaged, stayed, were engaged for months. They've been married. They've built a home together. They, can't, they just love being together. Now, would it make any sense for you to walk around telling Elise all the time, now, Elise, if we get divorced, uh, these are some of the negative consequences. Uh, we're going to have to split this house. And we did just buy a car, but we'll have to sell the car and split the money. And, you know, half the debts will also be yours if we get divorced. And if we get divorced, and if we get divorced, would it make sense? Have you ever seen a couple who was really in love constantly talking about the threat of what would happen if they failed and, and got divorced? In fact, that might even succeed in getting them a divorce if they did. But you get my point, right? When someone's in love, it's absurd to talk about the external consequences and pressures from without because it's already within. When a Christian loves God, when the Holy Spirit, the love of God has been shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Spirit and the, the reality of His Spirit and will have been internalized in their hearts, it makes no sense to think that the law and the external consequence of the divorce is going to be the driving force in their relationship. It's still there. <laughs> if a Christian decides to divorce God, it's still there. The consequences are still there. But as long as they're walking by the Spirit, they're not under the law. They're under grace. And as soon as they stop walking by the Spirit, well, they're back under the law. That's what he means when he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. But if you divorce, if you commit apostasy, if you break away, then you're back under the law. It's only when it's real and it's really inside of you that you come into this space of grace where to, to compare the vibrancy, the depth, the durability of your relationship according to the negative consequences of breaking it, that's just silly. If Brother Nathan, I think Brother Nathan performed your wedding, right? If he walked up to you and said, are y'all happily married? And you started saying things like, well, yeah, I mean, when we looked at the options of divorce, it, it really costs tax-wise. I think we're, we're very happily married. <laughs> but they'd be like, great, y'all are strong Christians, right? No, he wouldn't. He'd be like, there's something seriously wrong with those people. Do you understand? So when you're under, when you're in love, you're not under the law. You're so much deeper and further and beyond it in every way. But you can get yourself back over there. If you judge the health of your relationship with God against your divorce, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, that just shows that you're not really in love with the Lord. What I want to show you is that a walk in the Spirit makes your flesh, disallows your flesh to do what it pleases, right? So that you may not do the things you please. And it is precisely that restraint that allows for your freedom. If a couple has lost the love, lost the trust, every time one or the other does something, it's terrible. Running to the grocery store is a problem. Do you understand? Every time when, when, when the love is no longer there and the life and the spirit is no longer there, there's no freedom 
There's no trust. Do you understand? But when the restraint is there, then the freedom is there. Think about this for a minute, okay? Think about what I'm saying. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But he says that the reign of the Spirit causes us to not do the things that we please. Does that sound like liberty? You see, your flesh is going to be restrained one way or the other. And either you accept the internalized reign of the Spirit, and with it you get more and more freedoms. Or, paradoxically, in choosing to have your freedoms of the flesh, you become a less and less free person. We can see this civically and not just with an individual. When, when this country was founded, I want to ask you a question. When, they found, when the founders of this country were framing the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the Articles of Confederation, when they were doing all this, did they believe in sovereignty? Like James Madison, did they believe in sovereigns? Hmm? Some are saying yes. Some are saying no. Well, let's ask this. Did they, did they believe in human sovereigns? Did they believe that a man should be sovereign over a country or over a nation? No, they didn't. So what did they believe about sovereignty? James Madison said, Before any man can be considered a member of civil society, he must first be considered a subject of the governor of the universe. You see, in that day, there was still an internal restraint. There was still a sense that people didn't do things because of a sense of oughtness, a sense of right and wrong, not because there was a man with a sword or a pistol in his hand. When Alexei Tocqueville wrote his, his book, on democracy in America. He was what they would call a, uh, he was a, uh, a delegate from the French government, but he was a historian, a writer, and what some would call a sociologist today. And as a foreigner, he visited the United States in the 1830s. 1830s, approximately 35 odd years before the Civil War. And in the 1830s, in his exhaustive book, he says, he says, I, I saw a paradox in America. He said, I saw that unlike in England and Europe, there was less of a police presence than anywhere I had been in a uh, modern Western civilization. But he said, paradoxically, there was less crime, less petty theft than in any of those places. He said in England you would expect to see a constable on every corner and there's still theft going on nonstop. But he said in the cities that I visited in America, it wasn't like that. Now I'm sure he could have found places where it was. But he was struck by the difference in the U.S. culture 
in the 1830s. Can you believe that? And he said, it is as if there is some, I'm paraphrasing, there is some invisible restraint imposed upon the population that is enforced at the hand of no agent of government. You look at some of the, the freedoms that were afforded to this country in its beginning. And I'm telling you, they made sense to a population that had internal restraint. But he that hindereth will hinder until he hindereth no more and is taken out of the way. And once that internal restraint is removed, then the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. And then the freedoms that belonged to the restrained population now seem absurd to the freed population. Think of the changes that, is to, that have taken place over the past 250 years. It's all been for release. Marriages, you can be released from those. Propriety, you can be released from that. You can be released from your gender. You can be released from the role of a mother or a role of a father. You can be released from anything you want. You, you can be released from it. Release, 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 release. And corresponding to this release, do we see our freedoms increasing or diminishing? You see, you look at the Second Amendment, and I don't come at this at all from a political perspective, but you look at the Second Amendment that it's the right to have and bear arms I mean, most of us in here have had some experience with hunting or something like that. I, don't, I would never bear a gun to protect my, myself from a person, but I, I, I have firearms to protect, uh, to harvest my, uh, my game, and it's a big part of our livelihood. We, we eat that meat, right? But did we have the current gun crisis in the, in the 1700s and the 1800s and 1830s that we have today? Did they have homosexual maniacs in Columbine, Colorado, going in and killing indiscriminately, well, actually discriminately killing Christians? Did they have that in the 1830s? That was the first mass school shooting. There was one, one off here and there, but it was the first mass school shooting uh, in America. What, what changed? Was it the gun laws that changed, or did something else change? Did a certain moral hindrance that has always been inside people, culturally and ethically and familially, has it been taken out of the way? Do you understand? The more restrained a person is, the more submitted they are, the more I can trust them to give them liberties. I look at my, my son, Sean. He's seven years old. And his uncle gave him a bow for his birthday. And I, we, didn't, we didn't use that bow. We didn't, we didn't get that out for the first nine months. And then it's like, if I think that Sean is going to be careless with what I say, if I, if I think I, I can talk to him about the way he points the arrow and so on and so forth, and I think he's not listening and he's going to, disobey me and shoot it toward the house or break a window or hurt one of his siblings, would I not be terribly negligent and irresponsible to put that in his hands at all? 
to the degree that I trust that he will be absolutely restrained by my word, to that degree his liberties increase. Do you see the paradox here? To the degree that the flesh is in bondage, to that degree the spirit is freed. Even the rights and the authority and the power of the spirit becomes freed. It's the exousia of God, of the sons of God. The liberty, the power, the rights of the sons of God. And when I teach him to shoot a 22, when he's old enough for that, and that day comes, what I want to know is that he will be absolutely restrained by my instruction. And to the extent that he is restrained, to that extent I will give him liberty. Liberty after liberty after liberty. And to the extent that I think that he will not be restrained by that, then he will have to be restrained by circumstances and those privileges and liberties will not be his. There is a paradox going on. People will come from the world and they will see young boys in their early teens, 13, 14, even 12, driving a team of horses. I learned to drive a team of horses when I was 11 years old. I can still feel Brother Armando's hands squeezing those reins so tight it hurt, but I didn't dare tell him that because I wanted to drive those horses. <laughs> Somebody comes and, and they come from their culture and they say, good grief, you would let that 12-year-old get on, well, you better be in the spirit when you do something like that, but they would think we're crazy because their 12-year-olds are not restrained. The kingdom can confuse us because it says restraint in dress, freedom in relationship. Restraint in demeanor, freedom in communication. Restraint in submission and guidance, freedom in liberties and rights. The kingdom is the freest place on earth, but it is a place where the flesh cannot do the things it wants to do. And corresponding to that acceptance of bondage for this flesh, we have the liberty of the sons of God. We have not received a spirit of bondage, but of freedom where the spirit of the Lord is. You see, if you're not walking in the spirit, then you, you don't have that liberty anymore. You're an irresponsible brat. I, I, I remember going down on the farm and, and seeing a man who was in his 30s and who is mentally handicapped and who the world would have probably put in an institution. But you could see him with his dog at his side driving a four-horse team. Would you just go empty out all the institutions and put them behind a four-horse team? No, there is a relationship with this guy. And whatever other context may create, this context of restraint allows for more freedom. You take away the restraints and you take away the liberties. It used to be that families put it inside of their own children that you don't treat people abusively. But now they're going to start controlling speech because young people are committing suicide because they're bullied in the school. Do you know that in 2019 suicide 
is the number two cause of death between the ages of 10 and 34. It has surpassed homicide as the number two cause of death among American young people. They say that depression since 1998, I'm sorry, since 1999 until now, depression has gone up more than 50% clinical depression. Why are they depressed? I read a book this thick, full of actual accounts written by a judge who had written an account, accounts of the cases that he adjudicated in his court. It was the most heart-rending, ghastly account you can imagine. I would never give it to a young person. And you know what's happening? Those parents pamper their little prima donna brats and tell them they're special and tell them they don't have any restraints and they can be anything they want to be. And so they go in and they start abusing the liberties of their peers. They start transgressing the space and privacy of their peers. And then their peers lose hope and they despair. You, you, go, to the university, you go to the colleges and they're creating safe spaces. I'm not kidding you. Ivy League colleges have got safe spaces where, I want to say the thumbsuckers, but where young adults come and huddle because they don't feel safe in the university as a whole. There is chronic indigestion problems in whole school districts because children are too afraid to go to the bathroom because they'll know, they know they'll get bullied or harassed in the bathroom so they won't go to the bathroom and they mess themselves up. The pediatric society in America has made note of this. This past year, 2018, there were 323 mass shootings that occurred, resulting in 1,661 people being shot and about a quarter of those dying of their wounds. We are living in the day of release. And we are going to see the freedoms that made sense for a restrained society disappearing. But I'm telling you, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. If you'll let the Holy Ghost be your Lord and Master and take complete control then the Lord will say of you like I say of my seven-year-old, if I can trust him that he'll be restrained completely by my word alone, then I will release him and I will give him more power and I will give him more authority. Jesus, it says that Jesus could have called 12 legions of angels. We can't do that because the Lord knows we would abuse it. We don't know the power and the authority that God would give us if we could come into complete submission to his spirit. So many, so many of you young people, you want to achieve, you want to go somewhere, you want to be given freedom, but your freedom correlates to your restraint. Restraint is the corollary for freedom, and libertinism is the corollary for bondage. They have convinced everybody that they don't have to restrain themselves. Who is left to restrain that population? the state. When you convince people that they don't have to learn to restrain themselves, somebody's going to restrain them. It's going to be good old Uncle Sam.
And he's not going to do it internally by the motivation of love alone. He's going to do it at the end of a bayonet. Amen. Is it that, is it that children, are they committing suicide? Are they facing depression? Is it all because uh, their emotional psyches used to be tougher and today they're not? Well, that may be partially it. I don't think that's it. I believe that back in the day, those children were disciplined by their parents and trained that you don't treat people like that. Now they've been released. They've been told, you can do whatever you want. No, you can't. That's an illusion. That's just the fastest way to get the sheep out of the pen and out with the wolves. The church said, be the flock of God. The walls of Zion are its salvation, Isaiah said. Amen? The church said, submit to this and you can have freedom of the sons of God because you do not do the things that you please. And the world said, break down the gates. Call the sheep out. Get them to forget how to restrain themselves, how to walk with dignity and honor before the Lord and their fellow man. Get them out. Come on, come on. And then when they'd all left the, the flock of God, they turned the wolves loose and said, we'll, we'll be your protectors. Here, keep turning to the one who strikes you. We're, we're going to save you. God is asking us, would we be willing to come into complete submission to the Spirit so that admittedly we will not do the things that we please, but excitedly we may be given more authority, more power, more of the anointing, more freedom as the sons of God. That man, Alexei Tocqueville, he said this in his book, quote, liberty cannot be established without morality and morality cannot be established without faith and that's what God is asking of us can we trust Abba Father like a seven year old does his dad to have the faith that says God I know you're picking on me I know you're restraining me I know you're confining me and no discipline seems pleasant at the time but I'm not going to grumble and complain because I want to become a son of God. Amen. I want to show you that I can be guided with your eye, that I can be controlled by the word. Amen. That I'm not a mule or a donkey or a horse that needs bit and bridle and whip. I'm not a fool that needs a, a rod for my back. And if you'll just speak your word, Lord, that is, that is everything. That is my Lord. The Lord is the Spirit. If you'll speak to me, I want to feel that liberty of the sons of God. Restraint is the antecedent to freedom. So you say, why do we dress this way? Because we want to stay free. Why do we not date? Why do we restrain dating? Because we want to stay free. You think about it. If you were to take away those restraints, they would give you an immediate freedom and a long-term bondage. Bondage of addiction. Bondage of failures. God, help us to be restrained by your spirit alone, alone so that we can become free as sons of God. What is the prerequisite for totalitarian bondage? Libertinism the liberty of the flesh. When the culture was restrained, they could have guns. They could do what they wanted. Nobody was 
okay, there were problems. I'm not saying that, but there weren't mass shootings happening 300 and something a year. Something has changed. They released him in the television. They released him in, in, the, in the media in general. They released him in entertainment. It is the devil's business to peddle freedom, to make people slaves of corruption. Isn't that what Peter said? They promised them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. So the devil's business is to say to, the church, to Christians, you can be free, you can be free, you can be free. Come on, be free, be free, be free. And Christians just give up all these restraints until suddenly they realize that they have released something more powerful than they can control. It's the man of sin. Accept the restraints. Embrace the restraints. For in them you will find your authority, your freedom, your exousia to become the sons of God. Thank you, Jesus. We don't want to impress people. That's not my point. But God, we've got a kingdom to build. And these are the kind of men who can build it.